Ladies and gentlemen, don't switch off. This is the Asset Capitalist. I am Hugh Hendry. I did, I have managed Global Macro for the last 23 years. And you are here to learn authentically. There's nothing fake about this show. And I am delighted in that capacity to welcome the Cardinal, the Bishop, the Bishop of Macro Advice the former senior adv- economic advisor to, uh, to UBS, uh, the man who felt the rumble in the jungle in 2008, the Minsky moment. I, I want to welcome you into the, the realms of the great mind of George. George is Magnus or Magnuson, forgive me? Magnus. Magnus. He is magnificent. And we're going to have a magnificent time. Um, but if you're not a Patreon, it's going to last 30 minutes. I'm so sorry, folks. But, you know, I got to pay the man. Anyway, without further ado, George, how the dickens are you? I'm pretty good, Hugh. Thank you very much. Um, enjoying, wow, I call it semi-retirement. But actually, uh, I'm pretty busy a lot of the time, to be fair. And what are you doing these days? So I have a couple of academic affiliations. Um, I'm with the China Center at Oxford University, and I'm with the School of Oriental and African Studies uh, at London University. And um, yeah, I just spend a lot of my time uh, thinking, writing, presenting, trying to understand what's going on in China and what it means for the rest of us. Yeah, spend a little bit of time when I have it uh, thinking about big global macro issues as well. But um, China is a big part of my time nowadays. Well, you've come to the right place because uh, I'm kind of obsessed by mercantilism, China, um, the industrialization of China. You know, um, it's doing what the U.S. did in the 19th century, um, but it's running uh, trade surpluses rather than trade deficits. It, it's funding its expansion domestically, and it has profound repercussions for all of us, which I'm, I'm I'm sure we're going to explore. Um, I think to kick off, if we go back to one of those great highlights of your uh, many varied uh, successes and, you know, a life well lived, but, you know, the 2007 or so, because, you know, like you, I, um, there weren't many of us, but we were cognizant of dangers um, in the world. Um, and indeed, we could go back, actually, maybe let's go back almost another 10, 10 years where we had um, you, we had the tiger crisis. And I keep saying to the young folk, we're not talking about the tiger hedge fund crisis. <laughs> we're talking about the Asian, uh, the, the fast growing Asian uh, economies and, and the epicenter being Thailand. And, and they had been very open um, in terms of their capital account, they had profound investment, domestic investment opportunities, and it was being funded in an orthodox, and I would say in the best manner, with the surplus savings of the rest of the world. But of course, what happens with everything in life is that many years of success, perhaps bred complacency, um, and, and over leverage and, and, and volatility crept into the system. And, and there was a, a withdrawal of international capital and a great crash in the currencies there, which had profound, deep uh, potential implications for the global economy. Mm. 
such that such that the Federal Reserve felt. I want to say the Federal Reserve pivoted. I'm not sure if you agree, but pivoted and began to address the global economic stage with its monetary policy, as opposed to the domestic American agenda, which is to say it, it cut rates into that global scare. And it was, again, if we go back another uh, 60, 70 years to the end of the 20s, it felt like that that, that coupe de, de whiskey that Benjamin Strong et al. Um, added to the, to, the, to the fire, the explosive movement to the upside that we saw in the Dow in 19, early 1929, and of course, which we saw in NASDAQ. And so I'm beginning to get questions today. Um, NASDAQ is beginning to resemble that uh, late 1990s, the 98, 99. Uh, we've had the best start, I think, ever to a calendar year mm-hmm. in, in NASDAQ. And, and one question, because someone said, is it got anything to do with the AFC? Are you f- I wasn't familiar with the AFC. Do you know what the AFC is? Arsenal Football Club? No, can't be that. <laughs> it's doing the rounds now. It's the Asian. So there's an abbreviation. Oh, the Asian, the Asian financial Asian crisis. Financial right. crisis. Okay. And, and so and the, the, the centers for that, um, uh, the yen's in play. And, and of course... The, the, the high expectations of the reopening of the Chinese economy so far have been a, a dud. And this notion of an AFC is gaining ground. And, of, and so my mind's begin, beginning to hark back to the end of the 90s. Can, you, can I pass the baton <laughs> to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I suppose I don't know whether it was the first big financial crisis of globalization, but... I think uh, I think you're quite right um, to kind of highlight the fact that the Fed uh, really kind of went global, didn't it? Uh, for the first time that I suppose we might remember, really, um, in in the sense that we came to know it um, with with that crisis, um, and really, it's you know that's kind of set a marker, uh, and it's been like that kind of ever since. Now, whether I don't know whether. Um, uh, I mean, lots of circumstances are different today, right? So I think a lot of the Asian countries that got into problems at the end of the 90s, um, I mean, they were, I mean, they had, they were, they were trying this kind of trilemma, which doesn't really work, right? Um, uh, which is, uh, you know, trying to have fixed exchange rates, open capital accounts, and um, trying to control their own monetary policy. So, um you know, the world has kind of liberalized. They, you know, they're not, I don't think that, I mean, there are a lot of emerging and poorer emerging and developing countries that are actually hurting under the influence of higher US interest rates and higher cost borrowing costs. Um, but I don't think, um, I don't, I don't much sure. I don't see a kind of a, I, I don't, emerging market crisis as such isn't really top of my list of worries right now. Um, I mean, it figures prominently because if the Federal Reserve and other central banks try to squeeze the last vestiges of, you know, feistiness out of inflation during the next, you know, six to nine months, um, I mean, I think it could have uh, deleterious effects. I mean, I think it really could be very painful. Um, and so I think it's, I'm, I'm not quite in the camp 
you know, which says, well, you know, let's just give up and let's just have 4% or 5% inflation. Um, but I do think that central banks have got a huge call to make. Um, and if they end up on the wrong side of the call in terms of managing the deceleration of inflation, um, yeah, I mean, I think they could cause, I think they, it could cause a lot of trouble for, uh, for emerging countries. Um, uh, and I think China would be among them this time, right? Because in 1997, 1998, uh, China really kind of <clears throat> escaped the kind of uh, crises which were afflicting other Asian countries that had, you know, exchange controls, still do, on outward investment, um, financial system is relatively liberated, organized and run by the state. They can extend and pretend for as long as they like up to a point. Um, but I think China's in a different position in 2023 so yeah i think um i think um from a kind of a global macro point of view i i think we're at a a point i mean we've had a lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty but i think it just gets more pronounced now because the, the the cost benefit of getting the decisions wrong in terms of monetary policy i think are pretty high actually yeah, I mean, I how do I want to respond? So the, the the principal difference between today and back then is that the Fed is very domestically centric. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hiking rates, but the the COVID policy response differed in the U.S. versus um, Europe. Europe fiscally spent its money keeping people pay, paying people to to sit at home. Yeah. Um, and America gave uh, stimmy checks to, to go and spend. Um, and, and so when you look at trend GDP or trend consumption, the U.S. is, is, is on trend, yeah, if, you know, if not marginally above the preceding trends going into uh, COVID, whereas Europe never, never regained the trend. I mean, there was a, there was a great chart last week I think, it was, I think it was from one of the IMF economists saying that essentially Europe had, had suffered headline uh, inflation, you know, from from the energy shock uh, from Ukraine, whereas it was kind of more the real deal with the US. It was you know, demand led constraints which exposed supply and therefore you know market prices had to respond. And, and that um, if you were to take out the, the the visualization of the energy, which of course is corrected immensely now back to, to almost where it was. Uh, Europe really is at target, it's at 2%. Uh, um, but the US is there and it's, and it's. I mean, I think they're faking it. I think they're, they're jawboning. I, I don't think they want to go higher, but they've got to talk tough uh, in, in the short term. So the, the difference just now is US rates, I think, are, are high. They're threatening to, to go tighter. And of course, that has repercussions. So that's... I think that's where I would peel away from that comparison. Um, but again, I want to go back um, to the end of the twenties, George. Uh, not because I think you were around then. <laughs> not even um, me. Not even me. <laughs> but because um, that's the starkest parallels, and I, and I think it's where we can invoke a lot of your deeper knowledge, because. My take on that is, you know, we were in the gold standard, and and I want to say, 
and I don't know where you are with your Chinese policy unit, and I mean, who who, um, who sponsors that? Uh, well, the uh, the China Centre at Oxford, I mean, was basically founded a few years ago with uh, with Hong Kong money, basically. Um, but like a lot of colleges um, uh, at Oxford and Cambridge and other places, I mean, they're hustling for money. Everybody needs more money, um, and um, you know, during the pandemic, there was there were kind of restrictions, obviously, on foreign students, particularly Chinese students coming here. So anyway, but um, yeah, I mean, things seem to be easing up a little bit at the moment, but is is a financial, you know, there are financial constraints, no question over higher learning institutions. Yeah. Well, I mean, I ask because I, I've presented at, at universities, campuses in the US, and before going on, I've been asked to tone down my China rhetoric because, like you say, the the high paying fee tuition fees are predominantly from uh, you know from from that kind of China Asian stock. Um, but anyway, so I I think China's cheating the market based system and and it's preventing cheating in the sense that it has created an immovable object which is preventing market equilibrium from being restored okay and in fairness i want to say that that's what the u.s did in the 1920s with the gold standard um, and so my take on that is that the uh, the country with the comparative advantage let's say and, and that was the u.s especially striking especially striking after the, the horrors of the first world war um, and so it was running a profound trade surplus uh, with the rest of the world. And and therefore, as a consequence, it was uh, on the receiving end of gold flowing into its economy. And, and it was an elegant system because gold at that time acted as high-powered money. It was, it was the, the base which would allow leverage from the banking system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem, and it was, it was a, I, I would, I don't know how I would have reacted as a policymaker, because I'm not judging them. Uh, the problem was that you had more and more of this high-powered money coming in, and it was coincident with a, a domestic U.S. boom. And the idea of, of putting further fuel to that boom um, was hard, and it was one that ultimately the, the Fed via strong New York Fed run the system as you know and and they chose to immunize those gold flows and so they didn't breach the private banking sector Um, and that was an interfering interference with the system because the rest of the world the UK was in a depression Europe was in a depression and it needed there was a deficiency in global demand because the U.S. whilst it boomed, it should have boomed even more. And, and the difference would have been immense in terms of it would have represented demand for overseas goods and services, which were much lacking and much needed. Correct. And it, and it didn't happen. Okay. Um, and so we built fragility into the system. And, and of course, rather than, rather than exporting or rather, forgive me, rather than importing goods and services, um, it was the opposite. It was financial asset inflation. 
And so it seems so compelling to today's world where China has this profound surplus in manufacturing capacity and the U.S. is the deficit nation is and has proven for the last um, 50 years are willing to absorb that surplus of capacity in order to bring this great nation closer to the levels of prosperity that, that we enjoy. And, you know, there's an ideological notion that, you know, the richer you make overseas communities, perhaps you, you take it, you de-radicalize some of their, their politics. You make them more harmonious global cousins. And, but, but at the same time, you make them richer. And so there's a synergy that everyone ultimately benefits. And they benefit because rich folk or people who are poor, who are no longer poor, they spend, they buy things, they improve their life. But the Chinese system, via controlling, having a closed capital account, you know, we, 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 we talk in decades, if not hundreds of years. I mean, the starkness of China is that its currency is devalued from six and a half to what, 7.3 since 1994, you know, with the, the signing of the NAFTA agreement. And that breaks the logic of the market. And so you, you don't get these powers of equilibrium beginning to clear the system. And again, we're left with the world of a deficiency in demand because rather than Chinese citizens being rewarded with a currency, which I would argue should be closer to five, i.e. you need less red cabbage to buy a US dollar. Today you need seven, seven plus. And they're denied that. And so they don't have the resources to buy the goods and services from the rest of the world and the SOP, the, the brown envelope, is that China comes in, et al., the mercantilists come in, and they buy financial assets. And so we have the most catastrophically worst situation where we have profound disinflation in the labor, the global labor pool and profound asset price inflation. I've said too much. Please, what yeah. do you think? No, I, um, I, think you, I think you've nailed it. I mean, and we could, we could talk about this uh, a lot and we may have other things uh, to touch base on as well. But I think it's right. I mean, it's kind of interesting, um, just interesting in a very kind of nerdy way. But this year is the 300th anniversary of the birth of Adam Smith born in your home country, um, indeed. And, um, uh, you know, one of the things, I mean, Smith was about a lot of things, and, and lots of people have hijacked, you know, Smithian work, um, you know, to basically claim the rights to his legacy of thinking, which doesn't always kind of work that way. But anyway, in my view, you know, what he was all about was the intersect between uh, the market, the state, and civil society. And as you know, you know, he had a lot to say about trade and free trade. Um, and he was in that breath, you know, vehemently opposed to what he, because he wrote this book, The Wealth of Nations, but he was vehemently opposed to the kind of wealth accumulation that he observed mercantilism was designed to basically try, try to capture. And I think it's really interesting in a way uh, to kind of reflect on that in, you know, sort of almost 250 years after he published the book, um, because we have so much of what that problem is all about today, you know, which is 
the mercantilism which is practiced by, well, certainly by China, but actually not only by China, but, you know, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Germany, um, before the energy costs went up, I mean, the whole of the European Union was actually in balance of payment surplus. And and it's interesting, and, you know, and a uh, guy that I'm sure a lot of people know and have read copious amounts of, a guy called Mike Pettis at Peking University, has uh, has written uh, most recently in Foreign Affairs a very, very interesting article about reserve currencies, you know, and about how basically the, the system is basically geared towards accommodating the surplus countries like China, and that the United States is basically the only country in the world that actually has a transparency, capital market depth, and rule of law, trust, etc., um, that basically allows foreigners to buy pretty much any asset they care to choose, like equities, bonds, derivatives, uh, real estate, commercial property, um, and so on and so forth. And so this this systemic uh, imbalance, I know that we use the word imbalance a lot, uh, but this systemic imbalance really is not good um, for the world. I mean, it, it basically sustains underconsumption in China and other countries. I mean, a lot of people will know that the share of consumption in national income or GDP in China is about 38, 39%. I mean, that is ridiculous. Um, okay, if you add in public consumption, it's a little bit higher. But actually, it's kind of half of what it is in, uh, or maybe a little bit less than half, of what it is in, in most other kind of developed markets. And even in many of China's emerging market peer group countries like Mexico, Brazil, and so on, Turkey. So uh, this is a distortion, which I, I mean, I think this has created a lot of things that we've seen happen in recent years, you know, the the kind of the, the change of view about China, the focus on industrial policy, uh, the fact that, um, you know, we've come to recognize, I think, in the liberal leaning democracy world, that there is no amount of private sector activity that will compensate for the subsidies that China is throwing at, you know, semiconductors and uh, electrification and EVs and so on and so forth. So, some sort of response really has become inevitable, and we are starting to see that now. Um, with yeah, we, we are seeing it. Aren't we? we are seeing it. I mean, I mean, we have to see it, um, and 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 it, and it needs an engagement from the likes of us to, to take that forward. Because I want to say they're uh, they're encouraging signs, small, small almost. More than small signs. I mean, the preposterously entitled Reduce Inflation Act or whatever, the American, the, the Biden thing, yeah. um, is is a step in the right direction. I, I'm all in favor of that. I mean, um, the mercantilists provide a surplus of savings. The commercial sec a surplus of savings because of a deficiency that they create in demand. But they do provide the wherewithal um, for the government to step in and consume, or rather, in, choose to invest. And, and you know, the the Inflation Act, which is essentially subsidies to make things in America, is is not bad. You know, because you're you're encouraging domestic activity. Um, you will make your citizens 
wealthier, they will cons consume a proportion of that. They will con consume that with products from the rest of the world. Um, the spending is being dictated by private enterprises and semiconductors and elsewhere. If it's done poorly, they have the, the discipline of, of public markets uh, to make sure that the money is spent wisely. Um, where it falls down is in, there's a grotesque fiscal conservatism. I, I, you know, the UK, as an example, is in the midst again of repeating the, fo the folly of George Osborne. Now, in 2010, 2011, um, I thought George Osborne, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the United Kingdom, was correct because you'd seen the sovereign European crisis. Um, and therefore, they set about putting their fiscal house in order and reducing government spending as a share of GDP. Um, it, Ten years down the line, we saw it was a folly because you didn't need fiscal rectitude in a world where mercantilist nations will buy dollar bills, they'll buy uh, dollar treasuries, they'll buy gilts, they'll buy Canadian, they'll buy Australian. There's, there's not many they can buy, but those are the ones they can buy. Right. And so fiscal rectitude is, a, is the wrong response. And sadly, the present Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, um, is pursuing that again. And I think... Was it the OECD? It was the, the World Bank who came in, weighed in and said, not only does the UK need higher and higher rates, but it needs even more fiscal retrenchment. Now, that is to ignore this global trade conflict, which is profoundly damaging. How, how do we influence and get people away from bad naming geniuses like Keynes, etc., and it becomes this tribal, you know, we're for government or not for government. No, no, folks. We're about. We're all about trying to get out of this grotesque depression. Yeah. Um, well, the easy and perhaps much too simplistic uh, notion. I mean, uh, most people don't have to do this um, because it's actually a labour of uh, Hercules. But actually, uh, the the BIS Bank of International Settlements uh, publishes. An annual report it's just come out actually which is really it's usually controversial and um they make uh, the point in their report this year that george give me one second yeah. because i i have this thing where we're getting to the 30 minute section ah. and, and, that, and now we have the teaser that you're going to tell us about <laughs> this report this is yeah. this is why the folks should continue watching but to continue watching like you know, for a cup of joe, you you can you can watch more. Um, so so please, um, joking aside, wonderful that uh, we've we've had you um, with with us. There is so much to discuss. You know, we're going to get into why Nasdaq is what it is, but we have to dive deep into the history, into the politics, into the economics, if we have to have any chance of getting a glimpse of what happens next. So there's Patreon, um, there's Asset Capitalist Hats, whatever. We, we'd love you to join us. But um, from this moment onwards, goodbye, folks. And, and, forever, and, for, and for the tribe, we're going to continue. So, George, over, forgive me. Let's talk to me about that report. 